I think that it's very easy for us. We've talked about this some over the past several weeks, over the past several months, even over the past several years. It's easy for us as Christians to constantly be under the illusion or perhaps delusion that our enemies, that the greatest concerns that we have in this life are those which are outside of us. That our enemy is out there. It's either outside of these four walls, it's outside the walls of our home. It's out there. And what this passage teaches us is that while that is true that our enemies are without us, that they are out there, that there is the world and there is the devil and they hate us and they hate Christ, there's a third enemy that we often forget, we neglect to remind ourselves about, and that is the enemy of our very own flesh, the vestiges of, a, of the sinful nature that each of us carries with us. And this passage gets at that today. Well, last week's passage, you remember, ended with David promising Saul that he would not destroy Saul's house after Saul died and David became king. And then the two parted company, they went their separate ways. I'm sure that this was in some ways an awkward ending. They had reached a, a detente. They had reached a, at least a brief period of peace. They were probably hopeful for what might happen, but they weren't about to go back together. David was not about to go back to Saul's household and be a part of his court again, at least at this point. And so David and Saul, it seems, have achieved a cessation of hostilities toward one another, at least for a short period of time. And chapter 25 tells us of a significant event in David's life that took place in this period of peace between him and Saul. It's difficult to know or to tell how much time has elapsed between the events of chapter 24 and what takes place in chapter 25. But chapter 25 begins with a brief notice of Samuel's death in verse 1. And this notice, if you have read ahead, read through 1 Samuel, you will know that this notice is repeated almost verbatim in chapter 28, verse 3. But the narrator includes it first here to show the levels to which David is capable of descending in the absence of a, of a prophet of the Lord. In Samuel's absence, in the words of one commentator, God uses a woman to instruct David in the responsible as opposed to the intemperate use of power and violence. In the absence of Samuel, David becomes unmoored. We might say in the absence of the word of the Lord, David becomes unmoored. And in our passage, David impulsively tried to destroy Nabal and all of the men of his household, but Christ the King, who in the words of our own catechism, restrains and conquers all his and our enemies, restrained David from becoming his own worst enemy. As we work our way through the passage, I would ask you to consider this, to hold this thought before you. Jesus Christ restrains and conquers his and our enemies which frequently includes ourselves. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ restrains and conquers His and our enemies, which frequently includes ourselves. We've divided the sermon into three sections this morning, and it is an alliterative festival. The first section, feast followed by famine. The second, calm, cool, and collected. And the third section of the sermon, Folly's Final Fling. So again, the first section, Feast, followed by Famine. The second, Calm, Cool, and Collected. And the third, Folly's Final Fling. So let's turn to the first section of the sermon today, Feast, followed by Famine. 
You will remember, looking back to the early part of 1 Samuel, in chapter 3, verse 1, when Samuel was still a boy and was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the word of the Lord, we read there, was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. And you remember that the state of Israel at this point was very poor. At the end of uh, the book of Judges, it's talking about the absence of a king, but what it says there is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this was the state of things in Israel prior to God calling Samuel to be a prophet. And remembering that, we should be concerned that Israel might revert to that state now that Samuel has died. The prophet who has served decades in this capacity has passed away. And this foreshadows what may very well be a dark period in the history of Israel. Verse 1 simply says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now in the age of making a huge deal about the impact that a person made on the world on the occasion of their death, verse 1 seems pretty understated, underwhelming even, considering who it is we're reading about. It's Samuel the great prophet of the Lord. The one who the Lord used to effect so much in his, among his people and among the country of Israel. We simply read that Israel, all Israel mourned for him, but there's nothing about tributes. There are no speeches that are recorded. There are no recitations of all of the wonderful things that Samuel did in his life. The narrator for Samuel uses an indirect method of showing Samuel's importance for Israel. And that's really what the rest of the chapter is about. The narrator wants to emphasize the fact that Samuel was first and foremost a prophet of the Most High God. And his impact on society came through his uttering the very words of God. And he does this by showing what happens when there's a famine of the Word of God. Now in more recent times, in the last couple of hundred years, Count von Zinzendorf, he had this saying it's been repeated, and it's one of those things that I think is good for those would-be prophets of the Lord today, and specifically, properly meaning, uh, speaking about ministers of the Word, who are now, constitute uh, the, the class of prophets, not in the Old Testament biblical sense, don't take me wrong, but the one who proclaims the Word of the Lord. This, uh, this uh, man, Count Zinzendorf, he said, preach the Word, die, be forgotten. That's the work of the pastor. That's the work of the preacher. And that's essentially almost what's about to happen here with Samuel. Now, the language where there's a famine of the word of God, that language is used in, in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, which was written hundreds of years after Samuel died. This, this takes place after what we're reading in 1 Samuel. And there we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, the verse in Amos is in the context of God promising punishment to Israel because of their great sin. That's not the context of, what, of our passage in 1 Samuel. Our passage, however, illustrates that sin also comes about as a result of the absence of God's word. And that's something that we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus Christ, need to keep in mind. That in the absence of God's word... In the absence of sitting under the preaching and the teaching of God's word, in the absence of reading God's word for ourselves, sin often gains a foothold. 
Now we saw what happened to Saul when his contact with Samuel was broken at the end of chapter 15. When Samuel told Saul that he would not see Samuel again until the day of Samuel's death. And it was after this, of course, following Saul's rejection by God, that Saul went off the rails. He became increasingly jealous of David. He turned all of his resources toward the the task of killing David. And so, as verse 1 says, Samuel has died. And the rest of chapter 25 is devoted to the account of David, Nabal, and Nabal's wife, Abigail. But unspoken and overshadowing all of this is the fact that the prophet of the Lord is now absent from David's life. These consequences of Samuel's death are felt throughout the chapter. Now at some point after Samuel's death, verse 1 says that David arose and he went down to the wilderness of Paran. David and his men had been previously hiding out in the cliffs and caves of En Gedi overlooking the Dead Sea. But now that a, a degree of peace has come, his life is not quite in as much danger as before, and he can venture out at least a little bit. And verse 2 says that there was a man in Ma'an who, whose business was in Carmel. And the verse also adds that this man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, he had 1,000 goats, and it was the time of, of the year when the animal's wool was sheared. And these people would come in, these men would come in to, to shear the sheep. And there would be feasts, they would, there would be payment for uh, the, the shearer's services. In the next verse we learn that the man's name was Nabal, which means fool. And it's therefore likely a nickname. Perhaps it was something that was said about him behind his back. We learn that his wife's name is Abigail. Nabal was a fool, but Abigail, we read, was discerning and beautiful. And what is not immediately obvious in our passage is that David and his men had for some time provided protection for Nabal's shepherds and kept them safe from Bedouin raiders. We're not told the specifics of how long David and his men had offered their services, but it was long enough that David sent a request to Nabal that that Nabal provide remuneration in the form of whatever you have at hand, as David's men tell Nabal in verse 8. It's not unlikely, though it's not stated, that Nabal had requested David's services, but because he was such a harsh and badly behaved man, he had reneged on his offer of payment. And when David's men made the request to Nabal, he responded to them in verses 10 and 11, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? This is an offensive uh, 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 response to David's men. It's an affront, it's a challenge. And don't forget that that in this time in the world's history, this is very very much an honor and shame-based society. There are certain cultures today who still have an honor and shame uh, basis to them. Certainly 200 years ago in in the age of dueling, if there was a public affront that was offered, there would have to be satisfaction given, often in the form of a duel. And so when David hears of Nabal's reaction from his men, he says in verse 13, every man strap on his sword. David wants his men to gird up, to gather their arms. And around 400 men went with David while the other 200 stayed behind with the gear. Now David will almost say as much later in the chapter, but this is a boneheaded, impulsive idea. It was most certainly an insult to David and his men. But he had flown into a murderous rage over it. Who does that remind you of? 
And so we can see that in a sense, the restraining influence of Samuel had departed from David like it had departed from Saul, maybe not to the same degree. And like Saul, David is in need of someone to intervene and calm him down. Ironically, what David had done for Saul in playing the liar, he was unable to do for himself. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon, calm, cool, and collected. As David and his men were arming themselves, as they were preparing to go out and find Nabal, one of the young men of Nabal's house had gone and found his wife, Abigail. And he told her what had happened and what was about to happen. And verses 14 to 17 give this account. And in it, this young man relates to her what Nabal had done. But it also fills her in on how good David and his men had been to the shepherds and to their flocks, saying that nothing had ever gone missing and no harm had come to them all the time that they were there guarding the shepherds and the sheep in the fields. It's clear that the people of Nabal's household thought that he was wrong not to repay David and his men for the help that they had given. And he begs Abigail to do something to prevent great, great harm from coming to her household. When we read the account of what Abigail does next, it's quite amazing. She knows exactly what to do. There's no indecision on her part in the face of potential calamity. Verse 18 says that she made haste and took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and great quantities of grain and raisins and figs. And she packed these onto donkeys and she told her young men to lead the way to David and his men so that David would see the food first. The quickest way to a man's heart is what? Through his belly, the old saying goes. And Abigail seems to understand this. Then, only after he's seen the food, will he meet Nabal's wife. And as she wrote out, verse 20 says that David and his men came down toward her and they met. Now, verse 21, it's not clear whether David is saying this out loud to Abigail or perhaps whether the narrator is simply reminding us, reminding the reader of what David's intentions were, what he had said to his men. It's not exactly clear. But verse 21, we have David saying, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned to me evil for good. Though he has seen the food and he knows that someone is trying to make it right, he still feels the need to vent his anger. In verse 22, he goes even further. God do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David, we can say, is bent on destruction. And with Samuel now dead, God uses other means to restrain David from evil. In this case, God uses the calm, cool, and collected Abigail. Though David had just threatened all of the males in her family, her demeanor is the exact opposite of David's when they meet. Verse 23 says that when she saw David, she hurried and got down from her donkey. She fell on her face before David. She bowed before him, and she begins a speech in verse 24 that runs through verse 31. This is an extraordinary amount of of real estate that's given to Abigail's speech. In verse 24, she begins by taking all of the blame upon herself. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. She's taking on this guilt because she understands that her husband is a fool. That he's not, in a sense, one sense, responsible for his actions. So she's not completely letting him off the hook. She's the one with the sense in the household. 
She tells David not to be troubled by this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Verse 26 contains the crux of Abigail's speech to David and perhaps the crux of the entire chapter. She tells David in this verse, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now, how does she know this? David is on his way to go to Nabal. Is she speaking prophetically? Maybe not, probably not. But she's speaking in a sense about something that she knows will happen. That is, God is going to restrain David's hand. God is not going to allow David to commit this atrocious and evil deed. God is restraining David's hand from the blood guilt of revenge. You see, David here is on the verge of following Saul down his path of madness. And Abigail is calming him. And as further placation, after her words, she offers him very clearly the food that her men have brought. In verse 28, she asks David to forgive her. She's taken all the blame. And then in verses 29 and 30, Abigail tells David of her allegiance to him, to David. Despite the fact that her husband had shown David none. And she expresses her sure faith that he, that is David, will become the prince over Israel. And she ends her speech in verse 31 saying that after he has become king, my Lord, that is David, shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail understands that by David attempting to take matters into his own hands regarding Nabal, that what he's actually doing is trying to save himself from his enemy. And in so doing, in trying to work out his salvation, or to work salvation for himself, David becomes his enemy, his own enemy. And the same is true of us when we try to rely upon our own good works. When we point to what we have done for our standing before God. When we do this, we are trying to work our own salvation. Abigail understands that David's salvation, and we hasten to add everyone's, is in the hands of the Lord alone. In verses 32 to 34, David responds, and he makes it clear that God has indeed used Abigail to stay his hand. He says there, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Christ the King restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. We generally think of our enemies as being other than ourselves. The world and all of its opposition to Jesus Christ is our enemy. The devil is our enemy. But scripture and our confessions teach us that our, that our own flesh is also our enemy. And in some sense, it is our most dangerous enemy. Because we so often... Overlook it. We so often forget about it. We're so focused on what's outside and we don't think about what's in our own hearts. 
We ask for God to set a hedge of protection between ourselves and our enemies out there. But how often do we pray for the Lord to restrain the sinful tendencies of our own hearts? We trust in the wisdom of our own minds. We think that we are the most clever. While thinking ill of other people and how bad they are. Well, this section closes with David receiving from Abigail all that she and her men have brought, all of the things that were laden on the donkeys, and she reassure, and he reassures her that he has obeyed her voice and granted her petition. Though she is the one who bowed before David and put her face on the ground, it is David who has sat at her feet under her instruction and come out far better for it. And this takes us to the third and final point of the sermon today, Folly's fl- final fling. The final section of this passage begins in verse 36 when Abigail goes back to her husband Nabal, whom she finds drunk. He had thrown a party and he is completely oblivious to the mortal danger that he was in. And so she leaves him that night in his stupor. And the next morning when the wine had gone out of of Nabal, Abigail told him everything. And when she had finished telling him how close he had come to death, we read that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. Now this doesn't mean that he had a heart attack and he died right then because we read just the next verse that that ten days later the Lord struck him and he died. Perhaps he had a stroke. Perhaps he had some sort of aneurysm. We don't know. But whatever it was, Nabal ceased to function and then later on he succumbed to death. Brothers and sisters, vengeance is the Lord. God will repay. This is why we don't take matters into our own hands. This is why we we don't go after people and try to to run them down. This is why when someone on the, the highway cuts us off, we don't pull out our sidearm and wave it in the window, shaking it at them and threatening them. Because vengeance is the Lord's. That doesn't take away our our right and even our obligation to defend ourselves against imminent threat of danger. But what it does mean is that we don't go out after people. We don't go looking for people the way that David went looking for Nabal. Think about this. When Saul entered that cave in chapter 24, and David's men were egging him on to kill Saul, he had the perfect chance while Saul was relieving himself in the cave. He could have struck him from behind. Saul never would have known what had hit him. David and his men could have been long gone before Saul's men found out what had happened to him. And David refused. David acted with great virtue. He would not do such a thing to the Lord's anointed, he told his men. And yet here, when he has the opportunity to show great restraint, all restraints are off. But God reminded him through Abigail that David could not save himself. God used Abigail to restrain David. And David received word that Nabal had been struck dead. And in verse 39, David said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. What Nabal had done was most certainly wrong. It was most certainly sinful. It was evil. But David had to learn to wait upon the Lord. After hearing about this, David most certainly remembered that Abigail had asked him to remember her. 
And so he sent a marriage proposal to the recently widowed Abigail. And she promptly accepted his proposal, and the end of verse 42 says that she became his wife. And if the chapter had ended here at verse 42, it would have been a storybook fairy tale ending. And they lived happily ever after, we could read. But the Bible is about real life. And David was a real human being who was capable of sincere faith and serious sin. The passage, the chapter, continues on. At the same time that David took Abigail to be his wife, this virtuous, beautiful woman, what else does he do? Verse 43 says that he also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. We don't know anything about Ahinoam of Jezreel. Verse 44 may offer David's justification for this, but it's not clear. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. We don't know. This may be what David used to rationalize taking two wives, but this was not a wise decision on David's part. And again, we, the reader, are confronted with the sinfulness of David's heart. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, his sinful flesh remained. He continued to be a great enemy to himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, when the Lord is warning Israel that when they come into the promised land, they will want to set a king over themselves, he tells them that the king may, may not acquire many horses. He gives them a number of rules for the king. And he says, you can't, this king may not acquire many horses. They can't go down to Egypt to try to get more horses from Egypt. And the Lord also tells them in Deuteronomy 17, 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And look what happens to David. Look what happens to him as he acquires more wives. It only gets worse. He looks out. He sees a woman. He wants her. He takes her. Look what happens with his son Solomon, who had many, many wives, many concubines. Look at the trouble that it brought to him. Already we have seen in this chapter that, it is, that in the absence of a prophet of God, to put it more pointedly, in the absence of the word of the Lord, David began giving in to sinful impulses. And here in the last verses of our chapter, we, could, we see him continuing to do so. And we need to remind ourselves, we need to take this lesson that David is not learning so well and try to learn it for ourselves, that the primary way that God restrains the sin in our own hearts is by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to subdue us to His will. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to conform us, to shape us into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we might, not have, we might have no prophets in the Old Testament sense of that word, but we are even better off than our Old Testament brothers and sisters. How is this? Because we have the full revelation of God, by God, of Himself in Scripture. And God calls us to make diligent use of His words because through it, our King restrains and conquers our own worst enemy, ourselves. But God's Word also reminds us, brothers and sisters, that even when we fail to make diligent use of this means of grace, the Word of God, even when our sin is not restrained as well as it ought to be, that if we have true faith in Jesus Christ, our sins have been washed away. We have been made white as snow. 
God regards us. We stand before him and in his sight, we are spotless. We are sinless. We are blemish free by faith in Jesus Christ. And that, brothers, is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that when we are like David, you use all of the means at your disposal to restrain us. When we are giving in to our sinful impulses, our sinful desires, dear Lord, you always provide a means of escape. You give us a way out. You've given us the ability not to sin when faced with temptation, even though so often we do give in to temptation and go ahead with sin. But we thank you, Lord, that we are set free from sin's power, from its bondage. You've given us new hearts. And even though, Lord, we fight against the vestigial remains of our sinful nature, we know that you will cause us to be victorious because already we're victorious. Because already we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. We pray, Lord, that here on earth, in real time, all the days of our lives, that you would make us more and more like you have pronounced us to be in your court of law. And so we pray that you would indeed sanctify us, that you would sanctify us with the truth. Your word, O oh Lord, is truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.